we can find hope, uh, you know, with dealing with our, our favorite football team, our favorite sports team, that they are going to win their division and that they will get to participate in the big game. Uh, the Seahawks are going to say the Super Bowl. And uh, anybody here hoping that they win? Come on! Okay, well maybe you're hoping that your team wins. It's the Packers, it's the Vikings, it's the Cowboys, it's the Broncos, it's the Patriots, right? You're hoping that your team wins. Uh, maybe you've already gone to the store and you've bought the munchies that you're going to go home and eat while you watch the game and hopefully your team wins. Anybody hoping that your team wins? Okay, we got some more nodders. Okay, you're hoping your team wins. Well, as long as you're not playing my team, I hope your team wins too, okay? Or maybe you, you find yourself in a situation where you know somebody that you love is hurting. They're, they're in a hospital, they're in a, a, a health situation, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I mentioned my brother has a tumor in his brain, and I'm hoping that, they, that he recovers. Anybody think of something in your life where you say, I hope my dad is okay. I hope my brother is okay. I hope Mrs. Banner comes through this okay. You know, hope can be a very good thing because it gives you the confidence. It gives you something to cling to. Anybody who's going through a tough time, if they get a little piece of good news, wants to cling to that hope as a source of confidence that uh, things are going to be okay. But the problem with hope is that hope is not a guarantee that things are going to work out. You know that the newspaper that you read that says the crop prices are, should be going up or that fluctuating chart could turn out to be wrong. And so you get there to sell off your cattle or your crop, and that price could be lower than what you can expect. When you're watching the Seahawks, and I, and I, I check in with the, the NFL or the, the commentators, and they all pick the Seahawks to beat the Saints today, I can put my hope there and be excited because they think that's going to, that happens. Does that mean that's going to happen? No, and I know you're especially thinking no, right? It doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen. I can get my hope and my confidence in what the doctor says about my brother, that he's going to be just fine. I've done the surgery a hundred times. I know exactly what to do. I can put my hope and put my confidence in there. I can go to sleep at night and think everything's going to be okay, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. The doctor could be wrong. There could be complications that I'm not expecting and my brother could not recover from the surgery that he's going to face. Our confidence, our expectation, our optimism, or whatever else you want to call us, is something as good that we want to have, but it doesn't guarantee what's going to happen. When you talk about your salvation, it's, it's, there's a hope in your salvation, but it's a different kind of hope because it's not the kind of hope that, boy, I really don't know what's going to happen. It's the kind of hope that you can stake everything on, that you can put your confidence, your optimism, your reliance, your trust, and that what Jesus says is required for salvation is exactly what you need for salvation. I don't have to wonder. I can know. And that's what we're going to be looking at today when we look at salvation, when we look at what it takes to know that I have salvation. We're going to be looking in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And Paul, he's going to be the perfect example of false hope. This isn't going to work to get me to heaven. And he changes and he realizes this is what I need for true hope. And we're going to, I'm going to ask you, what are you relying on? Do you really have false hope to get to heaven? Or do you have true hope that gets you to heaven? Paul starts out in, uh, mentioning those to the Philippian church that you guys have true hope. He's, and he says here, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but it, for you it is safe. He's telling this church, you guys have this true hope, so you guys need to rejoice. You need to be happy. And I imagine there's some of you out there thinking, I have this true hope. I know exactly what that is. And if that is you, there's three things that I want you to do today. Okay? While I am preaching up here, I want you to pray because if there's somebody else in this room who does not have true hope, they need true hope. You know what that true hope is. I just want you to lift up a few prayers throughout this message where it says, okay, God, I don't know who in here doesn't have true hope, but God, please give them true hope. The second thing I want you to do is to think about who in your life you, that does not have true hope and think about what can you take and what can you give to that person in order to help them have true hope. And the third thing I want you to do is what Paul's telling this church to do in Philippi. I want you to rejoice. I want you to be happy because you have this confidence. You have this hope. You have this, re this enthusiasm, this, uh, deter this excitement because you have this true hope. So if you have the true hope, I want you to do those three things. I want you to pray for me and pray for those in here who might need it. I want you to think about what can I take from this message or, or what can I take from Scripture and who can I take it to. And the third thing I want you to do is rejoice. Enjoy it. Be happy that you have this true hope. So Paul, he starts out with this false hope of what he's going to, what he relied on to get himself to heaven, and, and that's where we're going to start as well. And this list that Paul gives, you know, if you're not a Jewish person in here, it's probably not impressive. You know, it's not really that kind of an exciting thing. We'll look at this list and say, okay, why is that that impressive? Uh, but for the Jewish person, this was something that was part of their heritage, it's part of who they are, something that they relied on as something special. But Paul doesn't just do that. He, he also gets into what he did on his own to help him to accomplish this as well. So if, you would, if you're following along with me, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 4 and part of 5. It says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So the first thing Paul is saying, I have confidence in, it's his heritage. It's all the thing. a heritage is something that's passed down as a result of birth. It means the things that he has no control over. He, he was basing his trust and, and having salvation based on things that he could not control. Uh, just like I had nothing to do with being a McLaughlin, right? If I was born into a Berkeley family, I'd be a Berkeley and I'd have nothing to do with it. If I was born into the Losing family, I'd have nothing to do with it, but that's what I would be. Paul's basing his confidence for salvation, his false hope, on his heritage. And the first thing that is included in that is the fact that he was circumcised. I'm not going to try to paint a picture or describe really what that is, except for to say the word means to cut around. And I'll describe it in this way, parents, in case your kids don't know. It's the cutting away of this foreskin, usually in little boys, newborn boys. Back in Bible times, it was on the eighth day. Circumcision was a special command that God started with or gave to with Abraham back in Genesis 17 as a sign of the covenant that he would be Abraham's God and that he'd be the God of Abraham's people. It's a, it's a, and if those males who accepted that, they were willing to say, okay, you're going to be my God, those males, such as Abraham, who I think was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and their sons, who Ishmael was 13 when he was circumcised, Isaac was eight days old, when he was circumcised, because those families were saying, okay, 
I am going to follow you as my God. And they're making a public declaration of that by, by having themselves circumcised and having their young boys circumcised as well. And that's a very big thing. I mean, for the Jewish people, for the males who are going to do that, there's a lot of people. So we're starting kind of like last week. We've got this big platform of all the people who fit into this category. It's, it's especially the Jewish people that are uh, being referred to here. And there was a lot of males who were circumcised, people who joined the Jewish culture, who are, who are going to put their faith in God, were circumcised as well. So you have lots of people. Paul says, I was, bo- I was circumcised on the eighth day. And so that shrinks it down a little bit because there were people who joined throughout time. They joined the Jewish people, but they weren't circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul, he takes this great big platform and he narrows it down just a little bit by saying, I was one of those people who was circumcised on the eighth day. Now I want to ask you this question, and it's a, it's a tough question. How much control do you think Paul had over that, over being circumcised on the eighth day? You know, I don't remember what an eight-day-old baby can do. I don't think very much. I think they can't even lift their heads off, off a pillow or off the floor. Uh, how much more do you think Paul is able to reason and say, Mom and Dad, I don't know if this is a good idea, or Mom and Dad, I really want to be a part of this, right? He had nothing to do with it, uh, That's why. but he's still banking it on it. This is uh, a, a commandment that God said for the Jewish people to follow. His family did it. He says, okay, the very first thing I can check off on my list that makes me one of God's children, I did. My parents did that for me. And there's lots of people who are willing to be circumcised and become part of that faith. And so that's the first thing that Paul is uh, saying this is part of my false hope, was that I was circumcised on the eighth day. The second thing included the fact that he was from Israel. Israel was a very special place. There's been billions of people all over this earth. I don't know how many different kingdoms, how many different countries, how many different nations there have been, but God says, I'm choosing the nation of Israel to be my own special people. You've got this, this platform this big, and now all of a sudden it's this big because the, the number of people that were God's chosen people of Israel is minute compared to the whole number. And God didn't choose these people because they were anything special. Uh, I mean, they were special, but it was because God chose them. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other people. So there's not even a lot of the people of Israel, for you are the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. TNT kids, you're a one of verse four this week. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. He was from the nation of Israel. Now how many people here can say I'm from the nation of Israel? I'm a Jew, right? That, there is nobody in this room who can claim that. And of all the people, of all the cultures around the whole world, there's only a very small percentage of people who could say that. Paul says, I was one of those. I was one of those people genuinely born as, as part of Israel. He was circumcised. He was part of Israel. And he says even part of that, he was even a smaller. His platform's getting smaller. He's part of Israel, but then it shrinks even smaller. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, when when uh, King Saul ruled, there was 12, and they were all unified. They all were, were working together. When King David ruled, they were all unified. When King Solomon 
was ruling. They were all unified. What happened after that? They split. It went 10 to the northern kingdom and 2 to the southern kingdom. That northern kingdom eventually was destroyed by Assyria or, or taken over by Assyria. All the people were dragged off in 722 B.C. never to return as a, as a nation. Right? There, there's, there's people who live there, uh, but they, were just, they never returned back to Israel as a nation. The two tribes that, was, that are still around uh, were Judah and Benjamin. They were the ones who were taken off to Babylon. But if you, if you know your history, your, your history of this, you find out that in Ezra, a bunch of them were able to return and rebuild the Jerusalem temple. In the book of Nehemiah, more were able to come back and build the walls around uh, the, the temple of Jerusalem. And so people came back. And so out of 12, you have shrunk down to just two. And Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so that just, that just, he's just building his case of something. How, look how special I am. This is my heritage until there's just practically nothing that does not include Paul as being the cream of the crop, the best of what there is. The fourth thing he says is my false hope included being Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Both his parents were Hebrews. They were Jewish. Paul was not born in Jerusalem. Paul was born in a uh, Gentile city of Tarsus. But his parents, while they lived there, they said, Paul, we're going to follow the Jewish customs. Paul, we're going to keep the Jewish tongue. We are going to keep living this out in, in your life. Uh, we're going to hang on to this. Now, I know when people came from the other old country or Germany or whatever, you guys, this church, as far as I remember my history, right, from what I've heard, the church spoke German, right? And then it was like, okay, German and English until now there's a few people who speak German. And that's okay, right? You go into a new culture, a lot of people assimilate into that culture. There's Jewish people who did that. They, 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 when they traveled around the country, they didn't keep speaking their own language, but Paul's family said, we're going to do that. So they said, we are hanging on to our heritage. We are hanging on to the fact that we are Jews, our traditions, our language. We are not giving this up. So Paul, out of everybody, he just, he's building this case. He's not trying to say, look at me, look how amazing I am, as if all the Jewish people are going to be impressed. He's, a, he's building his case to say, if this was to count to get me to be part of God's kingdom, if this is what it took to be saved, I nailed it, right? I did this. But he's, he's building his case to saying, you know what? That doesn't count. That doesn't work. Um, so he says, you know what? The heritage, the things that I could not control, I was circumcised, I'm a Hebrew, I'm, I'm from the nation of Israel, I'm from the tribe of, of Benjamin, all these things I cannot control makes me special. Okay, but the, then he says, okay, the things that I can control, because once he starts doing things, he has a certain amount of control of things that he can rely on to say that, okay, I'm good enough to get to heaven, or I did everything that's required to get to heaven. You find out, uh, what these are in verse 5 it says concerning the law of Pharisee concerning zeal persecuting the church concerning righteousness which is in the law blameless now he's getting to where okay I didn't really have much control over what I could do but he's saying now look what I can control look what I'm doing for myself in order to make sure that God is happy with me the first thing he says uh, concerning the law a Pharisee which I know 
Pharisees in the Bible are not really thought very highly of. They're thought of as people who say one thing, but they do something else. Paul was not that guy. Paul was the guy who says, okay, this is what the law says. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it into practice. And out of all the Jewish people, at the most, there was only 6,000 people who were uh, Pharisees at one time. So he's still, he's still narrowing down his, his platform of how special he is, how unique he is, because he's trying to build his case to say, if this was possible, if this was going to get me to heaven, then I was able to do that. But Paul, he said, okay, I was a Pharisee, and I was one who kept the law. Concerning zeal, he was persecuting the church. Okay, so if you read in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, and, and chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, you find out that Paul wasn't satisfied just to say, okay, I'm a Jew, and I believe this, and you're a Christian, and you believe that, which a lot of times people are in different cultures. They say, you know, we all just live together if we can all just kind of get along. Paul's goal was to extinguish the Christian faith. He was zealous. He was, he was energetic. He was excited. I mean, he was... He was determined to get rid of anything that conflicted with Jesus. But he wasn't satisfied just doing that in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going farther. And so Paul, he right now is in Jerusalem when he's doing this, when, where, where Stephen just died, because Paul, wherever he went from uh, where he was born, eventually made it to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going all the way up here to Damascus in order to get rid of these people. How many people do you think are going to want to do that. I'm going to cross country, I'm going to risk my life in order to finally get up here to Damascus and get rid of Christians. This guy was zealous. This guy was determined to, to stop the Christian faith, to do whatever it take because he was uh, against the Christian faith. He says concerning the righteousness and the things of the law, he was blameless. Whatever the law required, he says, that's what I'm going to do. If, if the law was going to make him righteous, Paul was determined to follow every part of the law. Now, how many of you think that Paul was always excited and wanting to do every part of the law? I don't think so. I think he wasn't, he might have been more zealous, more excited, more energetic than most people, but I'm sure he had his bad days. I'm sure he didn't want to go to, his, to, the, to the synagogue that day. He didn't want to have to follow these certain laws because they get old, they get monotonous, but he says, said, I'm doing it anyway. I'm not letting anything stop me. And do you know why he was like that? Because he wanted to go to heaven. He was determined to do whatever it took to get there. And as cocky as he sounds, as he sounds right now, is look at me, look how special I am. I'm about the most unique person out of all the Jewish people. He's not trying to say that, except for the fact that he's trying to point out that if somebody was going to get their base off of their heritage, someone was going to get their base off their works, it was going to be me. It was going to be Paul who was able to do that. But that, he says, is, my, is false hope. You know what? They are not the only people in this world that have their, their hope mess, put in the wrong place, that have false hope for salvation. Uh, false hope, our heritage. You know, there's a lot of people who... Uh, find based off of things that they cannot control that they are Christian. You know, I don't know if you guys understand what MK and PK stands for, but it's missionary kid and preacher's kid. And I thought about getting really redundant with SSTK, Sunday school teacher's kids, or ALK, Awana leader's kids, or DK for deacon kids, or T for trustee kids, right? There are a lot of people who think 
based off of what my parents did or what my parents were, I'm going to heaven. My parents were missionaries. My dad was a pastor. My mom taught Sunday school. And so I'm going to heaven. It's a very confusing thing. And it's probably not you sitting in this room, but it might be. But there's a big world out there that's got their hope in the wrong place for what makes them think that they're going to heaven. And a lot of people get confused too. They just assume Caleb's going to heaven because he's a preacher's kid. Well, he ain't getting to heaven because he's a preacher's kid. He's getting to heaven because he's putting his faith in Jesus. Uh, you know, the foxes, their kids aren't getting to heaven because they're over there in a different country or a different state, miles and miles away from home, trying to share Jesus. They're not getting to heaven based off of that. They're getting to heaven based off the fact of, of something else. And we're going to look at what that is. Some people think because I have a, of my family name, I'm going to get to heaven. Grandma so-and-so went to church. Grandma so-and-so was a Christian, and so that makes me a Christian. Grandpa so-and-so was a Christian, that makes me a Christian. And this, this third one is, is almost like the saddest one. You know, a lot of people think just the fact that they are American, that they're a Christian. I know at school, uh, Caleb's talked to a couple kids, and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, what is it that makes them a Christian? You know, Leslie told Caleb, well, why don't you ask him, what makes you a Christian? Because a lot of people think, well, it's just kind of what's going on. Everybody around here is a Christian. Everybody who lives in America is a Christian. That's because, and even other countries, they look at our country as what? They look at it as Christian. So if I go to Ethiopia, and they're, they're practicing whatever religion they have, they're going to look at me and just assume that I'm a Christian based off of the, where I came from. And America, I think a lot of people are really confused and just think, because I'm American, I'm a Christian. That's what you call a cultural Christian. Whatever the culture is, that's what it is. It's like thinking everybody in Saudi Arabia or one of those countries is Muslim. Well, is that true? No, they're not Muslim just because you live in that country. It's because of the faith they have, but it works the, opposite, the way for us. People think just because I'm American, just because I, I'm in this country that I am a Christian. And she's saying, no, you're not. Listen to this guy. He doesn't make you a Christian. People also put their false hope in doing good works. You know, baptism. You know, a lot of people, if you've ever been to certain churches, when, you, when somebody has passed away, they're having a funeral, and what do they give you, what hope do they give you that this person is in heaven? Well, so-and-so was baptized when they were a kid. So-and-so was baptized. I've even talked to people in my own neighborhood, and they find out that I'm a pastor. We're having a conversation. I'm like, hey, do you want to come to the Christmas play, or you want to be a part of this? And they're like, well, I was baptized as, as a kid. You know, kind of like, I'm covered. Leave me alone. I, I, I got my ticket to heaven was baptism. Now, baptism is not going to save you. You know, you think about the, the thief on the cross. Did he get dunked in the water? No, he's up there in pain, about to die, and that those, those soldiers aren't going to let him down to get dunked in the water because baptism does not save you. It, it, it's a good thing to do, though. If you haven't been baptized, it's a public declaration of what you believe, and it's something that God has commanded us to do. Uh, at the Wednesday morning Bible study, we were, we were discussing Nehemiah, and somehow we got discussing baptism, and, and Pastor Abel had a good way of looking at this. He says it's like when you publicly do this in front of people, it's like you're burning the bridges. You're saying, I'm not going to be like this anymore. I'm not going to follow my sin nature. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. Baptism is a good thing. But if you're baptized as a baby, or if you're baptized when you're 102 years old, it does not save you. 
But a lot of people rely on the fact that they were baptized. A lot of people rely on doing good works. A lot of people think that if, they, if my good outweighs my bad, everybody else thinks of me as a nice person, is going, uh, that I deserve to be to heaven, I'm going to get there. I, I'm the guy who stops and helps the old lady cross the street. The guy with the flat tire, I stop and help this person. My neighbor needs help moving cows, I'm going to do that. People get confused and think, well, I'm a good person. You know, when you look at you, you look at me compared to a lot of people in the world, we look pretty good, right? No one in here killed anybody. Nobody in here is, is out there robbing banks and things like that. So we all can say, hey, we're pretty good, but it's not good enough. And a lot of people rely on the fact, I feel good about it. I've done good things. I'm getting to heaven. And people even think, you know what? I support the church. Financially, I support the church. I gave some offering today, which, thank you. But that doesn't save you because I helped in Awana during the week. We need help, right? We're excited. I'm, I'm thrilled to death to have Nick running around with those kids. Nicole was pointing out how much fun it was to watch Nick and Noah with the cubbies. You know, that's the cutest little age, but I don't want to do that. But they do that, but that doesn't save you. When, when we have church work days and you show up in order to do something, to make this church work better, to function better, to be clean and painted, thank you. But that doesn't save you. A lot of people are going to be standing before God. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? They're going to give the wrong answer. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, a lot of people are going to say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do all these things? Aren't we worthy to get to heaven? What's he going to say? Depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not based off of what you do or what you've done that's going to get you into heaven. I don't know if you can read that or not. Sorry if it's, it's kind of small. Um, Isaiah 64, 6, it says, All of us have become like one who's unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All the good things that I do that I would like to say, Hey, God, look at this. This is why I should get into heaven. is like a dirty rag. You know, I always picture, you know, somebody needs to wipe off their face, and I have this dirty, oily rag that was been worked on, on the car for, for weeks upon weeks, and you give it and say, Here, would you like to blow your nose with this? You know, would you like to wipe the grease off of your face with this? How, you, how beneficial is that? Nothing. And that's what the good things, if I'm relying on my good things to get to heaven, I'm going to be sorely disappointed when I get there because it's like a filthy rag. Romans 3, verses 9 through 12, Paul wrote these things. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we in, any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that, we, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. We do good things, we can pat ourselves on the back, we can pat each other on the back, but that means nothing in God's sight. If you're relying on your good works, things that you have done to get you to heaven, I'm sorry, that is not the right place to place your hope. In uh, chapter, or chapter 3, verse uh, 2 and 3, Paul talks about these people that are trying to convince the Philippian church to do it differently. Because the Philippian church is saying, okay, we are trusting Jesus alone for salvation. There are people who are trying to convince them that you can't just follow Jesus. You have to follow the law as well. You have to try to be good enough. And Paul says, beware of those dogs. Beware of those evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, he calls them dogs. Now, dogs uh, are not your fluffy, cute little dogs, right? It's not a, a special term. 
You know, the only way I can think of dogs being a good thing, if, if you're willing to accept it, I've had people say, what up, dog? I don't like that. Don't. <laughs> what up, Josh or Doc or something? I don't like the word, what up, dog? Uh, it's, it's not necessary. It's not a good thing, right? Uh, and that, otherwise, the word dog in our culture, I think of an ugly person. That, that person is such a dog. They're so ugly. They're so unattractive. It is not a good thing. But in that culture, it was worse. It was almost like the lowest it, biggest insult that you can give somebody. It's like the lowest uh, life form that they had of, of people that they talked to. The dogs of that day were not your pets. They were the ones who ran around, who ate out of the garbage, who snarled at you, who were causing problems everywhere you went that everybody was afraid of. That's what these, this is what you guys, you guys are, are not helping anything. You're so self-righteous, you think that you guys have it all right, but you really have it all wrong. And he calls them evil workers. You know, these people maybe meant well, trying to say, follow these laws. And you know, and following laws is good. You know, even if they decided to follow the laws, but the best that it can do is just make people moral. It can help you have a good society. You could have a good citizen when he gets to, to college or when he gets to his workplace or when he gets married and has his own kids, right? That's all the law can do is just make you a moral person, make you acceptable to society, but it cannot save you. And it's even worse because these people who are trying to follow the law were, were trusting in themselves. They, were, they, didn't have, they couldn't take their eyes off themselves and say, I'm looking to Jesus for my salvation. All they could do is say, look at me and see what I'm doing. Am I doing enough? Paul came to realize that his heritage, the things that he could not control, didn't make him right with God, that they were a false hope. And the things that he could control, being a Pharisee by following the law, were not enough to make him right before Jesus. So Paul says, I have found the true hope. And so I want to share with you with the true hope that Paul found. It's verses 7 through 9. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God and is by faith. Paul's, his righteousness, he says it wasn't based off of anything that I did in the past. He says my righteousness, what makes me acceptable for God, wasn't what I did. It wasn't the fact that I went to Sunday school. It wasn't the fact that I was baptized. It wasn't the fact that I did X, Y, or Z that made me righteous in God's eyes. It was his faith in Jesus. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. By putting his faith in Jesus, his trust, his confidence, his reliance, his hope in Jesus alone for salvation, he was declared righteous. God wants to look down on him and say, you're not counting yourself to get you to heaven. You're counting on me. And Paul says, that's what I'm doing. That's the true hope. That's what I did. That's what you Philippian church can rejoice in because your hope is in the right place. But in order to Paul to make his hope the true hope, Paul had to do uh, to say, Paul had to say no. Verses 7 and 8, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the exceeding, or for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Everything that Paul could have stood on, 
everything that he could have said, hey, look, God, this is what I did, this is what I was, he says, I just have to take that and throw it in the garbage. That works for me, nothing. It, does, it doesn't add anything to me. I have to get rid of that completely in order to put my true trust and my true hope in Jesus. I want you to catch this. If you, if you feel like writing things down, um, you can write this down. Jesus, like trusting Jesus alone for salvation, plus nothing will give you salvation. If I just put my faith in Jesus alone, I trust absolutely nothing else to get me to, to heaven except for Jesus. What do I have? Salvation, right? But if I say Jesus, and I say the fact that I was baptized, I say Jesus, the fact that I'm American, Jesus, the fact that I was preaching up in this church for three years to get me to heaven, guess what that equals? Nothing. If I say Jesus and got me to heaven, absolutely nothing. Jesus is not going to accept me into heaven. It's faith alone in Jesus that's going to get me to heaven. Paul figured out what was false hope and what was true hope. I want you to consider, I want you to contemplate, where is my hope located? Is it located in what I did or is it located in what Jesus did? John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one is getting in the back door. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and my good works is not going to make Jesus happy. It's not going to impress him. The only way to get to heaven and the right way is through faith alone in Jesus for salvation. And the, Paul, the hope that Paul had is the same hope that you and I can have as well. We can have the confidence. We can have the hope that's not going to disappoint us. We, can have, we don't have to worry about, boy, I sure hope, you know, I have this, I have this uh, worry, this, this negative anticipation this may happen or may not. I can be confident and know that my, my hope is placed in the right place. My righteousness, what's going to make God happy with me, cannot come from myself. It has to come through faith, through my trust, through my reliance, only and solely on Jesus for salvation. And that salvation is for anybody. It doesn't matter for the person who's on the death row who's got three days left to live. You know, I don't know how that works. I think sometimes a preacher gets to go talk to them, share the gospel with them. That person at that point who's, who's done all these terrible, wicked, awful things, God says, I'm going to forgive you if you will just trust me alone for your salvation. It, you're, it's never too late until you quit breathing. To the person who's moral, who everybody says, you know what? Josh is a good guy. You know, Josh will never steal. Josh doesn't beat his wife. Josh doesn't, you know, he doesn't cheat on his taxes. He, he shows up to work on time. You know what? The person who everybody says is a good person gets salvation the same way. They're not too good or they're not too bad. It's, it's not too late. To the religious person, the person like Paul who dotted every I and crossed every T and was there every single week, every time the synagogue was open. The religious person who, was, who memorized all the Awana verses, right? The person who was always the first one that's VBS and the last person to leave gets saved the same way. It doesn't matter who it is, where they've been, what they've done. This hope is for everybody. This hope is for you. This hope is for me. The hope is for the whole wide world out there. And so hopefully you've been praying and thinking about somebody out there who needs to hear this true hope, that they're not going to go to eternity uh, die and, and go to eternity thinking, boy, I thought I had it right. I thought being an American got me to heaven. I thought because I went to church that one time 
I thought because I was a good person. We don't want them to spend eternity in hell thinking, boy, did I blow it. Boy, I wish I would have known the truth because you can't do anything about it at that time. So hope, it's a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It can be that the stock market goes up. It can be that your crop prices increase. It can be that uh, the cows, when you get to the barn auction or whatever, the prices are better than you expect. It could be in the fact that your sports team, I have hope, I can have confidence that, I'm going, that they're going to win. I have a lot of hope that they're going to the Super Bowl this year. Yeah, I do have a lot of hope. Okay, I didn't know if someone, whoo, or like, ha. Huh. Yeah, right. I have a lot of hope that my brother, when he goes through his surgery, is going to be okay. Do I know any of those things are going to happen? No, I don't know. Those, I just have to, I won't know until it's all said and done. But with Jesus, it's a different kind of hope. You can stake your life on it. You can, it's all your eggs in one basket. It is just Jesus. Now, if you want to try something else, I don't recommend it, but you can. If you want to try to stake your hope on the fact that you're a good person, and somehow you think you're going to convince God of that, I can't stop you. If you want to convince your hope, or base your hope on the fact that you were baptized, as a baby or some point in your life, knock yourself out. I don't recommend it, but you can put your hope wherever you want to. But you want hope that you can count on, hope that's firm, is you need to put your hope in Jesus. So what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose yourself? Are we going to let the world choose themselves? Or are we going to try to convince them that it's Jesus? Like I'm trying to convince you now that you need to put your hope in Jesus. I want to close in prayer, and I'm going to pray and ask God to forgive me for my sins. You know, it's, it's called a salvation prayer, and I did it I did it a long time ago. I told you when I was, I was a sparky, he went up every single week and said, I want Jesus. I finally decided by the age of 11, okay, I'm, I'm just counting it good. I put my faith in him, and I'm going to trust him as my Savior. I'm going to pray a prayer and just kind of go through. This is kind of a sample prayer, and I would like to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, to pray this prayer in your mind. And then I'm going to come up here and stand. And if you'd like to come, say, yes, I did. Or if you have more questions, or if you want assurance that you did have salvation, we can talk about that. And I know that's a scary thing to do. Because you guys have all known each other for your whole life, pretty much. Or, or you're a visitor, right? And you say, I don't want to do that in front of everybody. And I, uh, I just want to encourage you, don't let that stop you from even praying. If you say, I'm not going up there, you're not special enough, Josh, I'm not doing that. I want you to remember what my dad did, because when he got, uh, my, my, my mom took him to a Bible study, he heard the gospel, and he said, there's no way I'm going forward, and he didn't, but he went home, and he went into his closet, and he closed his eyes, and he prayed, and he says, Jesus, if this is real, I want it, and so even if you say, I'm not coming forward to, to make you happy, or to let anybody else know, don't, don't use that as an excuse to not do it at all, do it sitting right there, let the joy of that Lord be your strength, rejoice the way that we all can rejoice because we have the salvation. But I just, I just want to give the opportunity, and uh, you can pray with me. You can pray on your own in your room. Uh, but if you'd like to, to talk about it, or even if you say, you know what, I'm saved, but I'd like to pray for somebody who I know isn't saved, then we can pray up here as well. So whatever, for whatever reason, um, you can come forward and we can take care of that. Let's pray. Dear God, I am a sinner. God, I've been sinning since I even, before I even knew what it was. God, I have broken your laws and your commandments. God, I've sinned on purpose. I've sinned on accident. And God, because you said that I'm a sinner, I cannot go to heaven. 
God, you are perfect, and I'm not. God, you know all the good things that I do, they, don't, they are like a filthy rag. And God, so I'm sorry for those things that I've done, the bad things that I've done. I'm sorry, God, for relying on myself to get me to heaven. I just want to trust you. I just want to put all my eggs in one basket. I want to put all my hope, all my confidence in you, God, for my salvation. And God, I just pray that you'd please help me to live for you from now on. And God, give me the courage to share this faith with my friends, with my neighbors, with my loved ones who need to know that as well. Thank you for being my Savior. In Jesus' name.